this week, uh, Dan had mentioned, uh, and um, I sent an email out for everybody that I had email addresses uh, for in my Gmail, and so I hope um, if you got left out, it was just kind of like a, a Thursday night thing uh, of, yeah, Thursday night of saying, hey, the Shepherd team is having our, uh, we do this uh, at least once a year to get away for an extended time of seeking the Lord and praying together and, and um, uh, just evaluating the Lord's leading of harvest. Um, and uh, just send an email out saying, hey, if you have any, uh, if, please be praying. If you have any words of encouragement that I can share with the shepherd team. And, and that was so neat. And so Dan had shared uh, with you earlier just the feedback on that. And I just want to share with you how excited the Lord has us as a shepherd team for harvest. And and how uh, awesome it is for me to be able to share with uh, the shepherd team uh, so many things that I see coming together, just in, even in this winter season, of, of how God has prepared us for growing deeper in our relationships with Him and deeper in our relationships with each other. And um, uh, With that, uh, one of the things that we are excited about as well, you know, we have this uh, fellowship team that's developing, and one of the things that I've been looking forward to and the Shepherd team is looking forward to is that that fellowship team, um, I'm kind of tasking them with um, the, the uh, job of keeping a quarterly informational kind of town hall. If there's anything to kind of talk about, We'll talk about it at that um, on like Sunday evening or if there's just things to celebrate or if there's just things uh, to share with you on uh, the front of international missions. Uh, we're so excited about uh, Harvest. We we're, um, we uh, feel like the Lord has led us to get involved with a um, movement of God in Ethiopia and Kenya among the Boran people. We look forward to sharing with you about things like that. And so part of what I've asked the fellowship team to do is to start get these quarterly sit-down town hall, here's what's going on, uh, meetings, if you will, on the calendar. Help us make this regular. Help us make this um, a part of the life of Harvest. So that, you know, like what sometimes happens with pitchings. Wow, it's been a long time since we've had that. I, we need to have one of those again. We don't want that. Um, with this, and so I'm excited for that, and one of those that we will have coming up, if you'll see in your bulletin, is two weeks from today, uh, on the 27th, and um, it's, it's kind of called an informational gathering, uh, for lack of a better term, for calling this, and, and we see um, the, the uh, so much that we are excited about as shepherds that we want to share with you. And uh, lists off in your bulletin there that we want to talk about church finances, church polity, uh, for lack of a better term, that's church, what is the church government at Harvest? We want to talk about the master planning uh, that uh, Ben shared about in uh, four weeks ago, uh, before the holidays. And, uh, but we, we see also that there's a real need for clarity right now. There's a real need for clarifying um, you know, uh, in looking uh, back at um, having been share about the master planning right before the holidays, and, and then it's kind of like, hey, here's what's going on. 
okay, now we're going to talk Christmas, and Jeff's going to preach for two weeks, and that sort of thing from then on. Um, it's kind of like throwing a big question in the room and closing the door for four weeks. A- and uh, let, me, let me provide you a little bit of clarity on that front as far as this uh, master planning of harvests site, all right? One thing that is completely on the table in terms of options is that we don't build anything. Um, because part of that master planning is to say, okay, this is what the site eventually uh, could look like, but it's also saying, where are we at in terms of our growth? Where are we at in terms of our finances? Where are we at in terms of the heart of the people? That's why we're drawing from uh, nursery ministry, children's ministry, youth ministry, building, uh, maintenance, um, uh, the worship ministry, AV, things like that, uh, people that are investing in those areas to learn about those things and such. And so one of the options on the table with master planning is that we don't do anything in the near future, you know, as far as like adding on to the building or something. But uh, the reason why I want to share clarity with that is, is um, uh, it, it, it may it did come across from some people like well this is the 10 year plan this is what this building's going to look like 10 years from now or something like that that would be totally like that would be that would be unsettling uh, for sure um, and so uh, all that we're doing at this point is just saying what what could this building what could this this um, plot of land look like um, and, uh, you know, one of the things I want to clarify, too, is, is um, uh, what is Harvest's leadership model? What is our church government? You know, you have, you have I don't want to get too deep into this. Please come out on the 27th if you want, uh, um, uh, to, and I can answer questions and things like that. Um, I would describe a, a Harvest's leadership, our, our government model, as elder-managed. Okay, it, it's owned by God. It's managed by elders, or uh, my term for it is under shepherding. Under shepherding, uh, principles of under shepherding are also a part of a discipleship process. They come up uh, in other places of our church life. It's not just limited to the shepherd team. Uh, our our small group leaders are called to be shepherds of that small group. Our ministry team leaders, our servant team members, and when they when they uh, work with a ministry area, they're called to shepherd that area. So it's a principle that is used throughout what we do. And I shared with uh, as we as the shepherds were kind of talking about this and talking about the need for clarity within the body. I thought of a picture that I wanted to share with you. It comes from the movie Shaun the Sheep. Have you seen the movie Shaun the Sheep? Well, Shaun, it's a great movie. You should, you should watch it. So Sean the sheep gets lost out in the, in the city, and his friends, the other sheep, decide they're going to go and find him. And so um, I had this image in my mind, and this is the image for me of what it means to be an under-shepherd, what it means to be a part of the shepherd team at Harvest. It's some of the sheep that God has said, put this shepherd's cloak on and be a shepherd for a season. That, that's what it is. It's, an, it's being an under-shepherd of Christ. I think of uh, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, 
So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, Peter is saying, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And and this this is the line I love, and when the chief shepherd appears, speaking of Christ, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. So I look forward to uh, that could be something that we kind of answer questions about and, and get into more. Uh, what does that mean on January t- uh, 27th as well? So I really want to encourage you uh, to come out for that. Um, we are uh, looking at what it means to follow Christ from the inside out, though, in First Timothy. A- and part of what I was excited about as we as we prayed and discussed and sought the Lord over this weekend, is um, even what we're called to do as a shepherd team is to, to, to lead, to love from the inside out. As First Peter puts it, not under compulsion, but willing. And, and, and we are called to, to challenge harvesters to follow Christ from the inside out not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples for the flock, not working through harvest by fleshly means, by fear or by guilt, looking ahead to the appearing of the chief shepherd, Jesus, always everybody having our eyes on him. And, and I think you'll see as we get into First Timothy, as God was, has been leading me really in this direction for, for really kind of years, but in, over the months, you'll see, I, I think, this is what we need. This is what we need to hear from the Lord. And so let's, let's jump into 1 Timothy here. Uh, right there in the first verses, Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. First of all, we need to learn from this passage this morning how important it is that we live out of God's grace, mercy, and peace. Uh, and that, it might just kind of sound like a little greeting from Paul. It's really common for Paul to say grace to you or, or really often for him to say grace and peace to you. And we're going to learn a lot, a lot about Paul and Timothy and their relationship together during our time in 1 Timothy. Paul's apostleship, he describes it as being by command of God. 
you know, uh, there were 12 apostles, Paul being one of them. And, and when they uh, died and left this earth, the church was left with the Holy Spirit and those that the apostles discipled. There was no apostolic authority that was passed from one apostle to a successor or something like that. That's what the Catholic Church believes. That's what the Orthodox Church believes is that those apostles passed their authority on to another man. Uh, I'm sorry, that's not scriptural. Um, but, but while Paul was living on this earth, he, he held that special office, that unique historical office of apostle, and he had set his disciple, Timothy, over the church that is in Ephesus. And Timothy, he describes him as his, his true child in the faith. Paul led Timothy to Christ. Timothy had a believing mother and an unbelieving father. Uh, Timothy had a, a godly grandmother. And Paul led Timothy to Christ, and as he watched Timothy grow, and as the church that Timothy was a part of watched Timothy grow, they recommended him to Paul, and Paul took Timothy under his wing. You'll so talk a lot of times about a discipling relationship being like a Paul and Timothy relationship. There's, there's so much sweetness and, and, and just amazing uh, nature to this relationship that I look forward to us getting into together. And, and we will, over the course of this letter from Paul to Timothy, because it comes up so much, it's just weaved through it so much. But Paul prayed for grace and mercy and peace for Timothy. Uh, both for Timothy to experience and for Timothy to give to others. Grace being getting what we don't deserve. Mercy being not getting what we do deserve. And peace being the assurance of the end of hostility between us and God. And between us and others. One writer said, Grace refers to God's undeserving favor, love, and forgiveness that frees sinners from the consequences of sin. Mercy frees us not from the consequence of sin, but from the misery that accompanies it. Peace is the result of grace and mercy. It refers not only to the harmony with God, but also tranquility of soul. What's interesting here is, like, like I said, uh, grace and peace, or yeah, grace and peace to you was a common greeting of Paul. Only First and Second Timothy do we find him say, "Grace and mercy and peace." God needed to supply these for Timothy, and for him to share with others. There were some stinkers he was dealing with, and Paul was recommending mercy. And a, and, a, and a person in Timothy's place needs to re be reminded of the mercy that he has with God in order to be able to show that. And Timothy's present situation needed God's grace and peace and mercy. He says in verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. See, people in the church at Ephesus, not the church as a whole, but people within the church had been moving away from the gospel. 
Paul actually prophetically warned the elders of Ephesus that this would happen. You can read that in Acts 20, verses 29 through 30. You can read. He says, I know there as he's on his way to Jerusalem, he's visiting with the elders for the last time. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, he says to the elders of Ephesus, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after Understand this is, um, well, Timothy sent, he, he is sent by Paul to the church in Ephesus as their pastor. You know, this is generally speaking, this is typically speaking. Uh, at many churches, like at Harvest, the pastor, the pastors are co-elders. They're co-shepherds. Okay? But typically speaking, generally speaking, a big difference between a pastor and an elder isn't theological training or not theological training or anything like that. A big difference between an elder and a pastor is an elder is raised up from within the congregation and a pastor is called to the congregation. And that's what we see in Timothy's relationship with Paul sending him to the church in Ephesus. And he tells him, remain at Ephesus. Timothy at some point had been ready to throw in the towel. And Paul is referring to the fact, don't you recall, that I urged you, just as I urged you to remain there at Ephesus. But understand too, uh, that this letter is not just read by Timothy. This letter is read to the church in Ephesus. It's read by the church in Ephesus, it's pretty well understood that this was a widely circulated lever, letter as well. So Paul is reminding the church in Ephesus, I told Timothy to stay there and to charge certain ones of you. This man. So he's reminding the church that he authorized Timothy to act on his, Paul's, authority. When he says, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. This term, charge, we don't like this term. It means to command, to give orders, Paul had said to Timothy. It establishes Timothy as the doctrinal alpha dog, if you will. The one who is the under-shepherd to the chief shepherd for the congregation there in Ephesus. There's an old pastoral saying, um, because in the days that the pastor would show up on a train, the old pastoral saying is, beware the man who meets you at the train. And the reason for that is he's likely the alpha dog of the congregation. And in many ways, especially from the pulpit, from the, the, the pastor is called to be the doctrinal alpha dog. And, and it's the old pastoral saying is just kind of telling the young pastor, I guess, uh, keep an eye on that person, I guess. I don't know. But I just, that, that stuck with me. But, but this, this is reflected in Paul charging Timothy to charge others. Even later in uh, the letter, he'll say in verses 18 through 19, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, 
in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that, that, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And he'll say in 4.13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. In 4.16, he'll say, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. You see, there's something interesting that goes on in 1 Timothy. Paul never really says, this is what the teaching is. This is what the charge is that I've given you. It's the whole body of truth in the Scriptures. It's the whole body of truth that Timothy has the responsibility to communicate to that body in Ephesus. He'll say again in chapter 4, verses 11, command and teach these things. But Timothy needed God's grace and mercy and peace. He needed it for himself, and he needed it in the way that he related with other people. You know, there's a saying that says, um, talks about the, the cobbler's kids, you know, the shoes of the cobbler's kids are always going to be the worst or something like that. And you'll see that, Mark. I don't know if this is your case, you know, but sometimes people will say, well, don't go to a contractor's house, you know. <laughs> you'll see all these things that need to be repaired, you know. Uh, but, you know, it's the same thing, you know, uh, sometimes doctors are, I don't know, Mark, sometimes doctors are the worst about their health. <laughs> and sometimes pastors need to be reminded uh, that, that this is about God's grace and mercy and peace. They need to be reminded for themselves, and they need to be reminded that people need God's grace and mercy. And peace. And, and, and it's not sometimes. It needs to be a constant reminder. Some of you have worked or ministered or, or attended under pastors that it seemed like there was no grace or mercy or peace within them. God's grace and mercy and peace, they're not just eternal issues. We need to live in them every day. Uh, a writer says grace, mercy, and peace are needed throughout the Christian life, not merely at salvation. If you aren't growing in grace, if you aren't growing in mercy, if you aren't growing in peace, you're missing out on the joy of life in Christ. If others in your life aren't experiencing greater grace and mercy and peace from you, you're missing out so much on what it means to follow Christ. Listen to them if they tell you that. So what should the preacher be shooting for? Is it just a room full of people nodding their heads to his words? Or what, what should a small group leader be shooting for? Is it a a bigger group? Is it a small group anymore if it's a big group? I don't What's the end goal of discipleship? Is it that we memorize lots of scripture or believe in, in a person believing in their doctrine definitively or develop a con, uh, confidence enough that they have an opinion on everything? Just ask them what it is, they'll have an opinion on it. Verse 5 informs us of the end goal of preaching of discipling, of learning, all that's involved in following Christ. Verse 5 reminds us what the end goal of it is. And it's the key verse for us, for 1 Timothy. Where he says, the aim of our charge is love. 
that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I, I've shared this with you before, I, I think, um, but I've, I've joked before that after seven years, it's the year of Jubilee, and pastors can share all their illustrations over again. But I, I remember watching the Winter Olympics one time, and it was one of those situations where the, the event where they, they cross-country ski, and then they grab the rifle off their back, who fought this thing up, and then they lay down in the snow, and they're shooting at a target. Okay, what's it called? Biathlon? Thank you. Okay. And, and so... Uh, so the, the, the camera is zeroed in on this target, and the Olympian is laying down. It's an, it's an American Olympian, and they're making the comment, he is so far ahead in the points, all he has to do is hit the target, and he wins. And he pulls the trigger, and he, and he looks up, and people are just, like, stunned. He's like, what? And you're looking at the camera and nothing is on the target. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't believe it if I hadn't sat there and watched this unfold. He was aiming at the wrong target. All that work, all that investment, all that tension, all he had to do was hit the target and win the gold. But he was aiming at the wrong target. And I want to challenge you from this verse 5. This is the challenge for us from 1 Timothy. Check your aim by God's goal of love. What are you aiming at? What are you aiming at when you follow Christ? What do you think is the whole goal, the whole aim, the whole end game of following Christ, of being a church, of being Harvest Fellowship? It's love. The, the, The term aim means target or end goal. When he talks about the aim of our charge, it's, it's Timothy, the charge I'm getting you, giving you, Timothy, the charge that you're giving other people. The goal of it all is love. It's, it's t- the God, Paul, Timothy's goal in his preaching, out of love for his listeners, in the hopes that God will save people and they would become greater lovers of him and lovers of other people. The target of the, or the end game of the gospel of Jesus is love flowing from the believer, uh, the believer better experiencing God's love. And this love, this is agape love. This is unconditional love. This is the perfect love modeled by God, especially in his son Jesus. You know, there's this uh, AT&T commercial, uh, um, you know, trend going on. I don't know what you call that, but, but it's like, they're like, so how's your brake service? Or how's the surgeon? Or How's this? And they say, oh, it's okay. It's okay. And the question is, would you want that? Would you want that service from that person? I didn't, I, I saw this, um, uh, Brown Motors over on uh, 32. They got to get that sign out of their window. It says, okay, used cars. What are you thinking? <laughs> you know? They probably hate that AT, AT&T campaign. But, but we're given a quality here to our love that is a horizon issue like you will be for the rest of your life between now and eternity pursuing this kind of love from a pure heart from a good conscience from a sincere faith the goal of God's work through his 
truth is unconditional love from a pure heart. A heart, it's the source of our desires, the heart is. Our actions flow from our heart. Paul will tell Timothy in his second letter to him, in 2 Timothy 2.22, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The goal of God's work through His truth is unconditional love from a good conscience. If the heart is where the action starts, the conscience is where the actions end up. Right? Either a good conscience or a burdened or numb conscience. I think of the writer to the Hebrews. It says in Hebrews 13, 18, he asks the readers, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. If you have a, you have a good conscience when your actions are in line with what God wants you to do, and you're experiencing His grace and His mercy and peace and setting yourself free from, from the guilt that's uh, maybe weighing down on your conscience. It's about accurately understanding your actions under His grace and His leading. And the goal of God's work through His tr- truth is unconditional love also from a sincere faith. You've probably had this situation maybe with a family member or a friend or something like that. If it, you know, they're kind of a carnal Christian. That means they're a very fleshly Christian and you're starting to share the gospel with them and you're talking about, have you trusted Christ as their, your Savior? Or they, and they're like, yeah, I did that. Yeah, I believe all that. And you're kind of like, and maybe, maybe what's kind of going around in your mind, you don't want to judge the person and stuff. You're concerned for them. Maybe you're thinking of the statement, if it's not changing your life, it probably hasn't changed your destiny. Uh, this is kind of that idea from a sincere faith. faith. The term uh, here for sincere is uh, anhupokritsos. Anhupokritsos. We get the term hypocritical from the same time not a hypocritical faith. It's a faith, it's a truly saving faith that isn't just mental agreement. It's a sincere faith. See, the goal of God's gospel work is a person with a sincere faith that leads to a good conscience from obeying Him, which fosters a pure heart from which flows His that's the goal of it all. With 1 Timothy 1.5 as our key verse, we're going to learn a lot about walking in God's ways from the inside out. 1 Timothy is going to give us a lot of guidelines for the church. It's going to explain how we should live out of love toward each other. And those directions that, that, that we'll see there are intended to flow out of a love for God and a love for each other. And we're going to see qualifications for church leadership, for elders and for deacons, and the understanding underlying that is that all of that should be flowing out of and flowing to a greater love for God and a love for one another. We're going to see how behavior should take place among men and women and stuff like that. And that behavior should result of God's changing His children's hearts to make us more and more loving. I, I really challenge you to do some reading in First Timothy. There's a lot in there. 
You know, when you, uh, some of you hunters, and first couple sentences here, you're going to know I'm not a hunter. And some of you real hunters are going to be like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, I know you need to sight in your gun, right, at the beginning of the season or at some point. You need to check the aim of your gun. You need to make adjustments to make sure that, that where you're putting those crosshairs, that's where that bullet is going to go, right? And if, if you're missing the target completely as you're sighting in the gun, it, it doesn't help anything if you're thinking, well, if it wasn't windy, I'd hit it, so I think I'm good, right? Yeah, that's hunting for excuses. Well, good, I have an excuse. It was windy when I was sighting in my gun. Or, or you know, you're, you're not freezing up in a tree stand so that you can come home with an excuse, right? You're trying to come home with a deer or turkey or whatever it is that you're, 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 uh, you're, you're hunting for. When you sight your rifle up, you're not going to, to walk away from that sighting up your gun. Is that the, I hope that's the term for it, you know. Thinking, well, okay, as long as I aim to the right and up about two feet, I should hit it. We're going to see the opportunity through First Timothy of what does it mean to pursue love in relationships with each other. What does it mean for a church to be a place of love? And, and all of the, the descriptions that, that Paul gives to Timothy, like this is how Ephesus needs to function, and we're going to filter through that. Okay, but what does that mean for harvest? The end goal of it all, the reason for it all, is that we would love God more personally, corporately. That we would love one another. That we would love those outside of this body. And God's goal for His truth in our life is love from the inside out. It's a lifelong process of correcting our aim, repenting for the rest of our life. Because His love is a horizon we'll always be moving toward. And correcting that aim is a daily Sometimes for me, it's a moment-by-moment We're going to be celebrating communion together. And I know you would agree with me that God's greatest expression of His love, His unconditional love, is in giving His Son. You know, one of the things that we have a really hard time with is being unworthy of that. Is being unworthy of that. We, we can handle, wow, look at that. That is God's love. But is it for me? Is it for me? And that's why so many times people get caught up with, but there's got to be something I got to do. There's got to be something I got to do. I love Romans 5, 8. How does God show us his love? How does God show us that he loves us? How does he show us how he loves us. How does he show us who, what type of people he's going to pour that Christ-sacrificing love on? Romans 5 eight tells us, God shows us his, uh, his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. What an amazing statement for God to write down and say, keep that forever. And I want them to know that I showed my love for them 
and that while they were still sinners, I killed my son. The way that we're going to celebrate communion is, is uh, the praise team is going to come up and, and lead us through a time of reflection and, and singing. And play. We, we have time for one or two songs as, as the Lord leads and, and um, invite you to come to the table and to take that, that bread and that drink and to be reminded that that bread represents the broken body of Christ that God chose to love you with when you were an absolute wretch. In fact, he said, that's when I do it. And it's for a reason. And, and that, 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 what is it, great? Something. Can't, you know, we we, uh, we couldn't find our grape juice this morning. I think somebody guzzled it. <laughs> oh, okay, good. There we go. Well, Jeff, somebody, if it's if it's pop, somebody's going to be thinking, have we gone to alcoholic stuff? You know. <laughs> but uh, that that grape juice represents Christ's blood poured out for you while you were a sinner, while you were a wretch. In fact, that's how God wants you to know His love. It's for sinners. And it's a great sacrifice. So as we sing and as we, you come to the table, the, unless you just feel like this, this morning, not a right time for me to take communion. If you trusted Christ as your Savior, you stand in His love and He wants you to be reminded of it. Father, I pray that you would bless our time. Reflection on your great sacrifice, the breaking of your son's body, the pouring out of his blood. We would be more and more greatly convinced of your grace, your mercy, and the peace that you offer us in Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.